this is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact, UCD's business podcast. And it is going into a time of the year where a lot of people are worried about, well, a lot of things, really. Uh, Last podcast was very interesting with um, Alan Higgins, who was talking to us about the world of design and how Ireland, not noted for our design, you probably think more about the likes of Germany, Italy, some of the Scandinavian countries. But Alan really brought the whole idea of Irish design in business alive on the last podcast. But we're moving on to some different terrain today. Everywhere you go, there seems to be people buying wood, cleaning out the bogs of Ireland, it seems, buying sleeping bags, and of course, the humble jumper. Energy is at the forefront of the national conversation right now, and it's going to stay like that for the next few months as the temperatures drop and as the war, the brutal war in Ukraine, continues to grind on. Now, we've covered this topic from a number of different perspectives over the last year or so. We've talked to Urban Volt about energy as a service. We've also talked to other members of the UCD faculty here about different issues with consumer behaviour and how that can bring down your energy bill, trying to give you some practical tips. But it's very much, all the focus of the conversation is at those big, big kind of looming energy issues across Europe, the big systemic issues in that particular sector and how they're going to trickle down into our lives. Of course, the government announcing a €600 credit in three separate payments to be paid to consumers between uh, Chris, before Christmas and then into the new year as well. So all of this stuff means that it's an issue that's attracting, of course, a lot of intense research interest and academic discussion as well. And it's that area that my guest today is going to be able to contribute to that. He is Mel Devine, who is an assistant professor here at the Business School. He is, I think, as far as I know, the only person we've had on the podcast yet who has a degree in mathematics we do talk a lot in the business school about numbers and we talk a lot with maths, but purebred mathematicians are low on the ground on this podcast, but we're going to change that today. But what's more interesting about Mel's work is he is an energy modeler. So he's actually used to every day crunching the numbers that we've all become a little bit expert on over the last few months and certainly government planners as well about how much energy demand there is out there. Does it match with supply? And what happens if there's a big awning gap in the middle? What does that mean? So Mel can tease out a lot of this stuff and also the whole world of maths. What kind of skills you need to be a mathematician and what you can do with it after you finish your basic education. So anyone who's young and in that space will also find our discussion hopefully interesting. So you're very welcome to Business Impact, Mel. Thank you for coming on. Thanks very much for having me on, Emmett. It's great to talk to you. Um, as I said, uh, building up with the intro, a mathematician, we don't get too many on this podcast, which might be a surprise to many. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into maths. Was it always going right back to school? Were you one of those maths nerds, which is a, a very pejorative word. We're going to talk about that later as well. But were you somebody who was just into maths with the straight, straight away or was it something you've kind of cultivated over the years? First thing I'll say, I've been, had a very privileged career and kind of feel very grateful for it. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's something that I was always interested in, kind of maybe going even back to primary school and then on to secondary school. Then when it came to maybe just deciding what I'd like to do in college, I decided I'd do a maths degree in University of Limerick. And then I went on to do um, a PhD in it as well. So I'd say kind of very privileged to have those opportunities. 
one of the great things about maths is that it's it's relevant to so many disciplines. So it's it's relevant to kind of the sciences, physics, chemistry, biology. It's relevant to engineering, finance, and and, and economics. So you can use maths to study so many different things. If you want to kind of analyze how a glacier moves down a mountain, mathematics is going to help you. If you want to kind of study how money moves around society and and the economy, if you want to study how an infectious disease like COVID moves around the population, maths is there to help you as well. Maths is um, very relevant to so many different areas and at least lots of different career options. So when I finished my studies in UL, I had lots of options available to me. I, I went on then to work with the Economic and Social Research Institute. And then after that, I ended up in the Energy Institute uh, here, here in UCD. And now currently, uh, I'm in the Quinn and Business Schools um, in UCD. And there's actually a couple of us uh, mathematicians uh, here in the, in, in the business school. I mean, again, maths, as you, as you can say, it's very, it's very relevant to business schools. So if you're maybe looking to optimize your business process or, or if you're looking to kind of maybe group your customers into certain clusters, uh, mathematics, it, it's, it's there to help you. And it's very, very relevant to, to business school. Yeah, and I use the, I use the word uh, nerd because that's the word that a lot of people have said has done more damage to maths than anything else. Because as you will know, the numbers taking higher level maths uh, have been slipping. I know there's been some recovery in recent years. So do, do you think the whole area has an image problem or, or do you think that is actually being addressed from, from, from your perspective? I think like, I can maybe down through the years, it has maybe had an image problem kind of would have seen as maybe as a kind of maybe want of a better word and an already subject. But I think in like in recent years, I think a lot of work has gone into maybe promoting maths and kind of trying to increase the numbers, taking honors level maths in, in, in the Leaving Cert. Like, I think there's a lot of myths out there regarding um, mathematics that you're either a maths person or you're not a maths person. We know from kind of psychological research that, that that's not the case. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show, The Wire. Yeah. There's one great scene um, in that TV show where there's two very young drug dealers kind of talking uh, to each other. The older drug dealer is in his late teens and the younger one is in his uh, earlier teens. And the older kid is helping the younger kid to do his maths homework uh, just one day before they go out onto the drug corners to sell their drugs. And the younger kid can't do the the, the, the homework. He can't do the, the book problem. Then the older teen explains the problem um, in the context of a drug deal. And then immediately the younger kid gets it. Kind of using kind of maybe kind of a more colorful language, the older teen goes, well, how can you get the kind of real world problem, but not the book problem? And the younger kid goes, well, if you, if you don't get the math problem right on the street, you're going to get beat up. And <laughs> that's not how we uh, teach uh, mathematics here in, in uh, Smurfit and Queen Business Schools. I'm getting a bit worried. Yeah, this was recommended educational. What's the word? Pedagogical yeah. choice. Yeah. I really like about it because it kind of really illustrates what we know from psychological uh, research is that if, if someone has the opportunity and has the right mentality about learning mathematics, it doesn't matter what background that they're from, you know, be it from a socially disadvantaged background, it doesn't matter what gender they are, or whatever it may be, if they have the kind of opportunity and they have the right kind of attitude about learning, then they can learn what are perceived to be nerdy topics like mathematics. Now, what's great about your career and others uh, that, that work with you here in UCD is that, you know, you're applied mathematics, right? You're taking it and yeah. you're, you're using it and, and putting it against real world problems. Uh, I, I'm sure there's always going to be a place for the more theoretical part of the discipline. But, you know, there's great social value in 
researchers who can, who can do work that kind of makes a contribution. So you're doing modelling. Um, we all mm-hmm. got used to this esoteric world during the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. Certain modellers became kind of um, globally famous and certainly nationally famous here in Ireland. Um, talk to me a bit about modelling. Like, like I mean, we all see the, the X and Y plotting. We know about the different um, sort of, um, what was that called? I suppose technological equipment that you all use, the various platforms, the, the Pythons, the different packages that are out there and so on. Can you just tell us what 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 is a, what is modeling all about ultimately in your own mind? It's about really describing the world around us uh, using numbers uh, and equations. And a very simple mathematical model is the distance over speed time triangle. Okay, so if you, you kind of want to figure out how long it's going to take you to drive into work, right? You work out um, how far the distance is. Say it might be two hundred kilometers, and then you work out how um, how fast you're going to drive and say if I drive at 100 kilometers an hour, then you just take your uh, distance divided by your speed and uh, it's going to take you two hours. Okay, so that's a very, very simple mathematical model. I think a lot of of what I do is mathematical modeling of energy markets. I I try to use numbers and and, and equations to describe how energy companies buy and sell things like gas and electricity. So what I might do is kind of say in the electricity system in Ireland, I, I look at all the electricity generators that are available on, on a given day. So we might have a certain amount of wind generation available. We might have a certain amount of ga- gas generation available. I look at all the costs associated with that um, and how much um, kind of uh, generation capacity that there is available. And I compare that to demand. And then I kind of use um, the equations then to work out which generators are, are going to be generating on that particular day. And then from that, we can work out maybe an estimate for electricity price. Uh, so then kind of maybe looking forward into the future then, okay, we can say, well, what happens if we add in another maybe a couple of gigawatts in wind? How is that going to affect the energy system? And how is that going to affect the energy price? Well, I, I can imagine you were trundling away on all this sort of modeling maybe two or three years ago. I, you know, I can imagine when COVID came along, you know, that took on, sucked all the oxygen out of, of the academic world to some degree. But suddenly, Russia invades Ukraine earlier this year. Suddenly, energy markets spike in sort of uncontrollable ways. And suddenly, Mel Devine and his colleagues, you're sort of thrown or propelled into the, the foreground of uh, a lot of debates, a lot of policy issues and so on. So I don't know whether it's been an interesting period or, or a challenging and stressful period, but suddenly the work that you do is kind of in the news, has extreme topicality all of a sudden. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about energy. Obviously, we're all, there is great concern about this winter in particular, although as some experts point out, there's probably going to be a bit of concern about the winter after that as well. This isn't a kind of a, a one-shot-and-you're-done type of um, trend that's coming. But how do you see things? Um, the, 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 we've talked on previous podcasts about something called the energy trilemma, which is that energy should be secure, it should be affordable to those who need energy, and it should be sustainable. We seem to be making some headway on the sustainability, but we seem to be slipping back on the other two parts, security in particular. Obviously, because of the war in Ukraine, that's certainly part of that story. But how do you see this winter overall? And knowing the models as you do and having crunched some of these numbers, are you deeply pessimistic, optimistic, somewhere in the middle in terms of uh, keeping the lights on and making sure that the system here in Ireland is able to get through this particular uh, crunch period? So I think there's there's two real issues kind of 
facing uh, Ireland this uh, winter uh, with regards to our, our electricity system. And they're actually some, they're somewhat un- unrelated. So the first is to do with our security uh, of supply. So making sure we have enough uh, generators uh, to meet all the demand, particularly when it comes to the kind of uh, peak demand times in the hi- height of winter, kind of when the, the evenings are, are quite dark. Um, and really, that's a security of a supply issue. Uh, it, it's almost unrelated to the war in Ukraine. And it's all about uh, kind of um, how we procured electricity generators. Um, so I think every year there's um, auctions where the regulator would say, OK, we, we need this amount of generation for four years ahead. And uh, the generators come back and go, yeah, we'll be able to provide this amount of generation. And that's for generators that already have uh, generators available, that's no problem. Okay, so we have the likes of Pool Bay, we have the likes of Money Point, and so on. So that's uh, not, not a, a problem. We have other generators in as well that will say, okay, we haven't quite, we're not, we'll provide generation as well, but we ha- we need to uh, we need to build them. Okay, and uh, a couple of years ago, a couple of generators said that they would do that. But the problem for this winter is that actually, when it, when it came to the time, the generators that said they would build new generation had to pull out. Okay, so that's actually left us with a gap between the amount of generation that we have on the system um, and the kind of demand that we uh, expect. Uh, whether we'll be able to meet all, the, all our demand this winter, it all really kind of boils down to how much wind is going to be blowing on those high, high demand days. If we have little to no wind, then the system could be in, in, in a little bit of trouble. Um, I think this is something colleagues and I are, are kind of going to look at next year. So for generators that maybe commit to providing generation within pull pull out, there are penalties for them. Obviously, kind of this year, kind of maybe I think it maybe suggested the penalties for pulling out of the market haven't been kind of sufficient enough. Um, so I think colleagues and I are going to kind of look at this in the next uh, year or so and kind of ask the question: Well, what's the kind of fairest penalty for generators that say they're going to commit to generation but then actually pull out? I want that penalty to be high enough so that if a company kind of commits to providing generation, then there's a, a severe enough penalty for them. But also, we don't want that penalty to be too high either because we don't want to disincentivize companies for actually making uh, the commitment. One thing people might ask, uh, those who are listening in, is how did the system become so razor tight in, in the first place? Because you're, you're saying certain generators pulled out, leaving us a bit yeah. short. I mean, I, I don't know, but most systems work a bit of redundancy into them anyway, so that, you know, you, you sort of have... I don't know how much, a few hundred megawatts sort of spare capacity floating around for the, the winter peak type of thing. Has that just kind of um, drained away over recent years? Is that why that's not there? Or, or is that not the way energy systems work, that it's kind of wasted capital or something? Or is, is there any reason there isn't sort of a, a little bit of a, a buffer in the system? We should have that buffer in, in the system. There is kind of maybe two combining things that have happened. Our, our demand for electricity is increasing all the time. We've seen kind of increases particularly in large and industrial users. I think we might have heard a lot about data centers as well. But then on the supply side, we've had have had those issues too, where we kind of maybe expected certain generators to be available and they have, they're have they not going to be. That is essentially the crux going into this winter. I suppose the other problem is we don't have enough renewables. I was amazed to see recently that we only have one single offshore wind facility. Now, there are others in, in the pipeline, but... That, that's a very low level of development, isn't it, in that very valuable kind of area because it's, it's windy out there, it's reliable, etc. It's kind of the, 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 the more efficient end of the renewable sector, but we've, we've only got one wind farm off the uh, East Coast, 
which is amazing when you're heading into an energy crisis like we are. I don't know the the roots of that, but it, it does seem we've left ourselves short in that area, if, no, if nothing else, you know. The problem with the kind of offshore wind is actually kind of building the uh, the wind generators out there and getting the kind of connection out to the offshore wind. And overall, then, Mel, uh, you're saying it's it's really down to the wind conditions. I saw a report the other day, I think it was a European weather agency, who were saying, yeah, it doesn't look good. It looks like it could be a cold, but not very windy winter, which is not what we want. We want not cold and lots of wind. So the exact uh, weather conditions, you figured that that's the the key uh, the key to whether how bad this could be this winter is just the wind conditions in particular, because that's the bit we just don't know anything about at this stage. And I suppose another uh, unknown is that we don't know exactly what demand is going to be like at the kind of at the peak as well. I think the, the, uh, the Commission for Regulation of Utilities um, have kind of, they've brought out uh, new tariffs that kind of make the price of uh, network charges at the times of the high demand. They've increased those by 10%, but they've also reduced it, uh, the network charges of off-peak times by 10% as well. I think that may save us as well because that might give enough of a, an incentive for kind of maybe particularly large consumers of electricity to move their demand and from those high peak times away to the kind of maybe lower peak times and i think that might save save us too it's a, a it's all a bit of an, an unknown at this point i would say well looking out a bit further out because as as i said earlier in the introduction one winter um it doesn't make a summer or some kind of garbled analogy in terms of the seasons but one winter won't tell us everything about where the energy market here is going we need to look beyond we need to new look at new energy sources. There's a lot of talk around LNG in particular. I know you, you've got direct uh, research experience here and there's talk around hydrogen as well because so, we're so reliant on just conventional natural gas that you know comes in on a pipeline and goes into a power station and you generate energy off it. That's kind of been the model for decades really plus we used to have coal of course in a big way as well. But uh, in terms of these newer forms, are you excited about LNG's ability to make a, a difference and hydrogen as well? Could you just talk our listeners through a little bit about which one of those two you're most excited about? Yeah, I'm probably more excited uh, about hydrogen. I think that probably has more potential. I think maybe I'll speak about LNG and kind of alternative gas supplies initially. Yeah, so colleagues and I did a study on kind of the Irish and uh, gas markets and w- what would happen to prices if if new s- kind of sources of supply came online, maybe kind of like a, an LNG plant or, or if gas storage was available. And what we found is that we would see kind of some s- small decreases in, in gas prices, which would did filter down into electricity um, prices as well. Could you just quantify the numbers there when you say small, just to give us some idea? I think it was on average about a 3 to 4%. I'm kind of a little slow to kind of maybe use that number now because we did that a couple of years ago. And as we know, kind of the energy markets have been kind of turned upside down as a result of the Ukrainian um, crisis. So I think new sources of gas supply like LNG and gas storage would put downward pressure on gas and electricity prices um in, in Ireland. I think the one thing I would say that even if if those sources did become um available, we'll still be at the mercy of the international uh, gas markets, while um there would be benefits to, to new gas supplies like LNG. I am not hundred percent sure that that's definitely the way that the uh, kind of maybe countries uh, should go. Yeah, I suppose I suppose what, what what's um eye opening is that the number of European countries that are going down that road, mm. Germany in particular, is really going uh, heavily into that area, but you do see other places, Iberia, you know, you see I think Belgium, I think Poland as far as I know, Italy. Um so 
while Ireland is turning its uh, face to it, it does seem other European countries are making a very firm um, entry into this one. Now, maybe they have more crippling energy shortages, that, so they're, they're almost forced into it. But certainly, Ireland will find itself reasonably the odd one out if, if that trend continues. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say Ireland is kind of the odd one out because we're importing most of our gas um, from Britain. The Irish gas system is essentially a small part of the UK's gas system. There is LNG uh, import facilities uh, in in Britain, I think, in Wales. So if you kind of take Ireland in, in the context of being part of the, uh, the British uh, system, we already have a, a LNG uh, importation. Yeah, so suppose we, you, it's coming in in the pipes effectively when it's recirculated, yeah. you know. Uh, as once somebody once said, you, you can't say what power comes out of your plug. Um, so that's always, yeah. always a difficult one to disaggregate the different sources. Finally, then onto the hydrogen, which I suppose is, is kind of further out. There's been lots of uh, excited talk about what it might be able to do. Uh, where do you stand on hydrogen solving all our problems over, say, the next, uh, probably the next decade, I would presume, it's further out? As I mentioned earlier, I'm part of the, the UCD Energy Institute, which is a multidisciplinary institute that kind of look at a whole range of energy issues. And my colleagues in, the, in that institute uh, looking into the kind of possibility of, of using uh, hydrogen uh, as, a, as a source of energy. Um, so maybe actually to, just to give uh, to explain to listeners what we mean by using uh, hydrogen uh, um, as a fuel. So uh, the way that would work is what we do is kind of when there is a, 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 an abundance of electricity, say in the middle of the night when it is quite windy, what we do is we send electricity through water uh, in a process known as electrolysis. And what that would do is actually split the water um, into both hydrogen gas and uh, oxygen. What we do then is store the hydrogen uh, and then burn that hydrogen uh, maybe later in the day when there, there isn't as much uh, electricity available, there isn't as much uh, wind blowing uh, and the demand is higher. And then if we burn the hydrogen, uh, we can use that heat energy to generate electricity. Um, so what you know, co colleagues and I found is that if if we were able to do that, um, we would see a decrease uh, in electricity uh, prices, particularly at the the, the peak times. Um, and that was a couple of years ago, before before the uh, Ukrainian crisis. So the effect is probably even larger now. So like, okay, that's the technology. But again, would we yeah. be trapped a little bit by the infrastructure? Like, like does this involve the the, the the state? I suppose building a lot of hydrogen tanks or like what, what's needed to kind of bring it in or because I suppose lots of things work scientifically but uh, in terms of building the, the machinery equipment and so on behind it is, is a different matter isn't it? I think that's really kind of an open kind of research question is how we, so I think this this can be done kind of maybe on a very uh, small scale at the minute I, I think it's an open question how this can be done on a, on a large scale such that it's kind of worth the investment. Now, one final piece uh, I'd like to talk about, but only briefly. The other one is nuclear. Um, we don't think we're going to get it here, but we're obviously there are nuclear uh, power stations in the UK. Do you think as this energy crisis bites over the years that that form of technology will be looked at? I mean, do you think that will come, you know, to be seen as a viable source? Or do you think, no, I, I, I don't see that happening. What's your own instinct on that one? Um, my own honest answer is I don't know. And I, I think that's... That, 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 that's okay. The one thing I think I would say, I think as a country, I think we should be open to all forms of kind of um, alternative forms of energy and kind of maybe not have a, a closed mind to it. If it turns out, if the latest science uh, tells us that small scale nuclear is something that is suitable for Ireland, I think then we should be open to that. 
Yeah, but I suppose it's 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 probably not selling itself as a technology too well at the moment because I, I know a lot of the French nuclear plants have been off um, off the yeah, system for yeah. months on end for maintenance. So a lot of people are saying, well, at the moment where they're most needed, they're they're not performing. So there is that side of things as well on the reliability side. Um, can I move the conversation a bit on, um, Mel, on to just sure. what you do yourself a little bit more? Because this business analytics title that you have, I mean, it's such a wide umbrella term. A lot of our listeners who listen in will be students. They'll be people who are researchers maybe at an earlier stage. They may be back in school, doing their leave cert, etc. What What is business analytics? And why why is that an area you think they might just be interested in studying on a more long-term basis? It's describing your business using numbers and um, equations. And then that kind of allows you to kind of analyze, okay, how, how is your business working? It allows you then to make and maybe predictions about how your business is going to maybe grow or kind of how your consumers are going to behave um, or how markets are going to maybe grow into the future. And then that maybe allows you to be kind of prescriptive. Okay, so what's my best uh, strategy in terms of targeting uh, consumers? What's the kind of optimal way for me to efficiently run my uh, business uh, process. So yeah, I think uh, business analytics is the it's the combination of all those things. It's it's using maths and numbers to kind of maybe describe your business, uh, predict how your business is going to grow, and kind of uh, using the the numbers to kind of make help you make decisions. Now, HR analytics. We've we've had conversations on this podcast before about that part of it, which is there's all sorts of ethical issues wrapped up in there. But business analytics, like like if you look at the different courses that are offered in this area, it's really diverse. I mean, it's something that maybe people don't appreciate. There's a whole range of stuff in in, in under that heading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, so here in kind of Smart Business School, we have, have uh, the MSc in uh, business analytics. Um, so some of the types of courses that we are uh, running that is the we have optimization in business. We look at statistical uh, methods. We look at then uh, kind of programming for, for analytics. So it's all kind of getting the different different skills that you'd need to become a, a, a business a- analyst. Uh, one of the kind of more interesting modules that we have kind of is a sports and performance analytics is where we're going to use kind of where you learn about how to use kind of uh, maths and statistics uh, to kind of study and analyze as sports. And, and this is a kind of a very much a, a growing field. I think if you look at a lot of kind of soccer clubs over in England in the premiership, they've invested huge amounts of, of money into their uh, sports analytics uh, teams. I think teams like uh, Manchester City and Liverpool, uh, teams like Brentford, they've all made huge investments um, into their analytics teams. And I think that they're, they're reaping the rewards for it as well. Yeah, so it's a very rounded area. I mean, I think just, just the word analytics sounds kind of um, straight. It sounds kind of a bit starchy, you know, in terms of what you might be doing. But it is actually a really diverse area with a lot of sort of different streams to it, which maybe people don't appreciate. And just to broaden that out before we, we let you go and finish the conversation, a lot of this stuff is very interesting. Energy is in the news. You've talked about you could be doing sports analytics. In terms of people coming to you who might want to be in the area of being a modeler, are you looking for tech people? Are you looking for maths people? What are the skill sets? Or if you're an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old about to graduate from from a primary degree, what are the things you'd sort of say, this is what you need to have, this less so? Or what are the skill sets? I mean, just pick them out if you can and, and, and explain to us, to be a modeler, what Party of brain are you going to be using, or what? What, what really matters in, in in this whole area? 
Yeah, well, I think, well, maybe if you're kind of maybe looking to do it as a, a, a primary degree, I think the most important thing is kind of having that right attitude and kind of maybe having a growth mindset. Uh, I think once you have that, you can learn any of the kind of analytics techniques. If I was maybe kind of someone um, uh, in a company and I was looking to take on an analytics person's, yeah, I think the different types of things that I'd be looking for, certainly the technical expertise so the ability to understand the different kind of mathematical and statistical uh, concepts as well. Um, I would say the other things, um, I say the ability to do some coding, kind of maybe work with some software packages like Python and, or GAMS or MATLAB or, or, or something like that. I think um, having that coding skills is, is important as well. I think the other uh, thing I, I would highlight as well um, is the importance of communication skills. So to be able to... Um, explain the kind of challenging techniques to maybe kind of uh, a broader audience in, in your company as well. I think that's quite important in analytics and also to be able the ability to build uh, relationships. Okay. So if kind of maybe a business analyst and maybe the kind of wider company don't have a good relationship, it's very hard to transfer the kind of the knowledge that we gain from analytics kind of to uh, the wider company in order to have um, a, an impact. So yeah, it's kind of to sum up what we said: the technical expertise, the software expertise, kind of maybe the communication skills, and the ability to build relationships. I think they'd be all the kind of key things. That if I was um, an employer, I'd be looking from um, a business analytics graduate. Great, uh, and you can be like yourself. Find yourself propelled into the the topic of our our age, which is energy, yeah. or, or will stay that way. And uh, Mel is also on social media; has a Twitter account there where he puts a lot of his very interesting research which as i said is utterly topical at the moment we were going to do something really cheesy mel and play bob dylan's blowing in the wind or something to finish off this conversation but we won't i know we have been pressing you for very firm answers on what we're facing into the winter but i think what's coming across is we just don't know and that's the whole point it's it's very unpredictable the weather doesn't give you a memo in advance of what it's going to do so we just have to sort of uh hold on and see how it all plays out. It'll be grimly fascinating one way or the other, I think. Yeah, I think if maybe we are to experience kind of a kind of some short blackouts, it's not going to be into the world. I think, you know, we have blackouts maybe every every winter in terms of, yeah, at times of storms and that. I think, you know, we have, we're we kind of out of electricity for a couple of hours. Now, obviously, if electricity goes out for like a couple of days, then that's a much bigger deal. But, you know, blackouts and kind of having electricity down for a while it is something that we've seen before well as a man who was born born in the 70s i do remember getting my candles out on a regular basis mainly because actually a lot of the time it was industrial relations uh, disputes certainly do remember that so it's about time to to touch base with that kind of experience again but thank you very much for for giving your your perspective you are as i said in an area that's really hot right now in terms of debate and academic discussion and there's different like all academic worlds, there's different factions and tribes and all the rest of it, but you've been very clear on where you're coming from and, and your peer-reviewed research really speaks for itself. So thank you for coming on. That's Mel Devine. He's an assistant professor of business analytics here at the UCD Business School. And thank you to all of you listening for another edition of Business Impact. We'll talk to you again soon. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. 
I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music